I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, so if you would open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be starting in verse 17 today, and we're actually going to finish 1 Peter 4. So we're going to get through up to chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5. But then I want to pause right there. So we're only doing three verses because we're doing 17, 18, and 19. And I've, I'm not trying to stretch the content out. I don't really like that sort of thing. <laughs> so, so I'm going to teach these verses. And then we're going to pause because we're going to get into a new subject about leadership and what kind of pastor you should look for or what kind of leader you like to be, you know, that sort of thing uh, in First Peter 5. I love, love, love this passage. It's close to my heart because I consider it very uh, self-confrontational for my own ministry. Now, since we're doing a uh, what would be a shorter study, I, you know, that's not me. I'm not going to do a shorter study. So instead, we're going to be starting in Proverbs 30. Here's a little, here's a little fun passage for you before we head into 1 Peter. So you can have your place there in 1 Peter 4. But Proverbs chapter 30 has what is a messianic passage in the book of Proverbs. It might be one you're familiar with, but I just wanted to give it, give it credit <laughs> because I find this to be a beautiful passage and wonderfully laid out and really awesome. And it gives us, um, it gives us Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's one of, my, one of my hobbies is Jesus in the Old Testament. Maybe we'll do that on a Sunday night series. We'll do like a four-year-long series of Jesus in the Old Testament, something like that. That may happen. But Okay, so here we are, Proverbs chapter 30. Um, and we'll start in verse 1. He says, The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, his utterance. This man declared uh, to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. So it's just sort of saying, okay, these are not Proverbs of Solomon. They come from Agur. You may not know that guy, but the Lord does, and it's kind of cool that he cares to have their names in there. Um, verse 2, surely I am more stupid than any man. <laughs> I love this because I think this is the proverbial equivalent of Paul saying that he's the chief of sinners. He had a, a, a deep awareness of his own personal humility, that was, and he didn't mean it as hyperbole. He really knows his sins deeply and goes, I'm the worst of sinners. I persecuted and tried to kill believers. We should all know our, our sin enough to realize that we are, you know, hell is a rightful sentence for me. Um, it is by God's grace that I'm, that I'm set free. And so here is the wisdom equivalent of that where you just go like, yeah, I'm an idiot and I know it. And so, but that's the beginning. That's the start, right? To know that you don't know. And he goes, so I'm, I'm more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. So he goes, I'm clueless. But now, in case you were thinking that you are clueless, you are clueful, if that's even a word. Uh, but if clueless is a word, then why can't clueful be a word? So if you're clueful, and you're thinking, Agur, you're stupid, but I'm smart. Now he kind of brings us into awareness of our own stupidity. So here we go, as he asks us some rhetorical questions, things he can't answer that reveal to him that he needs, he, he has gaps in his knowledge. You know, He says, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Like, have you ascended or descended? No, I certainly don't. I can't claim to have that kind of knowledge. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? I mean, I, I can grasp the wind. It's ineffective, but the Lord can actually control these things. Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? That, so then by comparison to God, I'm an utter fool. I'm an utter fool by comparison to the Lord. But then he says this, what is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? And I'm like clearly this is talking about Yahweh, God. This is talking about God. And it goes, what is his name? 
and what is his son's name, if you know. And so it's it's interesting how Agur goes like, I'm I'm a fool, but then lays out this prophecy about this this uh this picture of Christ, this mentioning of Christ in the Old Testament. It's beautiful, really exciting to me. And um and then of course the next thing is every word of God is pure. The next thing it says, this was important. This what was just said was really important. So I think that Proverbs 30 just gives us there's more to look into it there. I mean, Jesus, you know, here he um he ascended into heaven and descended in the other order. He actually descended and then ascended. And so we have other connections to Jesus. Um, but I, uh, I just think that's cool. So that's Proverbs chapter 30. Now we'll back, back to First Peter chapter 4. That's your little, your little token thing there. Just for fun. Just for fun. Where's, where's Jesus? I used to do this with the young adults group years ago. We would do, where's Jesus? And we would go to some random passage in the Old Testament, look for how we see Christ in that passage. And then we would start our Bible study. We had a guest one time who came and we did Where's Jesus? And we went through um, the entire book of, oh gosh, was it? Yeah, it was Ruth. And so we went through the entire book of Ruth. It's like four chapters. And we just read through it saying, Where's Jesus? And then we were starting our study and they were like, Whoa, you're not done? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just my habit. But Okay, so First Peter 4, 17, it says this. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. There's a, actually a lot of stuff in those little few little verses there. The first thing that jumps to my mind is this concept of the righteous one being scarcely saved. And so I immediately go, well, what do you mean the righteous one is scarcely saved? I'm scarcely saved. Well, I think if we go uh, open your Bibles to Matthew 19, flip over there for me. Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26, Jesus tells this parable that I think is connected to this idea of the righteous one being scarcely saved. It says in verse 23 there, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So some people actually take this and they go, well, there was, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. It was nicknamed the Eye of the Needle. And you, would, you could get a camel through there, but it was really hard. And you had to like, you know, get it down on its knees and take the packs off of it and shove its head down and kind of push it through. And you could get the camel. It was just really hard to get the camel through the Eye of a Needle. And the truth is, this is totally not what Jesus is talking about. Like, this is just baloney. In the end, Jesus responds to explain what he means. With men, this is impossible, not really difficult. And it's harder, like poor people can get into heaven easy, but rich people, it's really tough for them. Rather, he was shaking their world up because he's showing them that even with wealth, which was considered, you know, you're wealthy, why? Because you must deserve it. You must be a good person and God's blessed you with wealth. So you must be godly. He goes, ah, it's even harder for them because they have actual material commitments that sometimes block out their, their recognition of their spiritual needs. So he says, uh, you know, who, who then can be saved? Peter responds, or they respond, uh, but Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So this is the idea of the, 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 the righteous being scarcely saved is that it's like you are saved, but it is with difficulty. 
In fact, that's what the word scarcely can be translated as in that passage in 1 Peter. It could also be translated with difficulty. So we are saved with difficulty. Um, Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22 say this. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, and this is Acts 14, 22, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Or, we are not saved by trials, but we're saved with trials. Does that make sense? I am going to go through trials as a believer in Christ, and this, is, this is, should be no shock to me. I should not consider it a strange thing when this fiery trial comes upon me. I will go through these trials, but I'm not going to be saved because of going through trials. It's simply the trials of the saved. And so there is this difficulty or this pain that I'm going to go through. And we've talked about how trials cause us to be purified. They, tra- they cause us to grow. We've, in fact, this morning with the youth ministry, I was talking about John 15 and how we get pruned. You know, and the, the what is it? The, the smaller the plant, because you prune it, you're actually cutting parts of the plant off. The smaller the plant, the, plant, the more fruit. The bigger the plant, the less fruit. <laughs> so they, we get pruned down and I decrease and he increases in me. So I'm getting corrected. I'm having chastening. And we've been talking about that a lot recently. So <clears throat> um, that's the context, I think, of the righteous one being scarcely saved. I'm righteous by faith in Christ, but I'm saved with difficulties or through hardships. And that's the context of verse 17, because it says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And that's the context of, in fact, a lot of First, first Peter, a lot of the book. I'm going to go through trials. God's doing the work. I need to trust him in it. So I want to take my time on this a little bit because we have in verse 17 and verse 18 an allusion to the Old Testament, and then we have a quote from an Old Testament passage. And I want to um, give you guys three different ways in which New Testament authors will quote the Old Testament. I think we have some examples in this passage that will help. And it certainly helps me because I used to think that the only way in which the New Testament quoted the Old Testament was to say, this passage, word for word, we're quoting, And this passage teaches the point I'm making here. Kind of the way I typically quote the Old Testament. But it's actually, there's more than that. And we can learn some important stuff today about how the Old Testament is referenced in the New Testament that will keep us from, I think, going through some headaches. As you you read where they quote the Old Testament, then you're like, then you look to the Old Testament passage and you're like, wait, how is that connected to the argument they're making here? And hopefully I can explain some of that today. So, um, one of the things that the, the New Testament does is it simply directly quotes the Old Testament. This is probably the, the most obvious, right? It just directly quotes it. However, the New Testament almost always quotes the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is basically a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, we have our Hebrew Old Testament, but they're not quoting that. They're quoting the Greek translation that they had during their time, during the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C., the Old Testament was translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. It just means 70. And it was supposedly 70 scholars were involved in this translation work to get it over from Hebrew into Greek. Greek was the common tongue. And when these New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they quote that Greek translation, specifically word for word, that Greek translation. So this passage in verse 18, now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? That is a quote from Proverbs 11.31. But if you turn to your Bible, Proverbs 11.31, if it's New King James Version, which I teach from, it'll say this, if the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, 
how much more the ungodly and the sinner. So now you might go, wait, that doesn't sound like a direct quote. Well, no, it is. It's a quote of a translation. So now we're getting an English translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And that's why it, ta- it sounds a little different. So here's what they're quoting. It goes from Hebrew to Greek, from Greek to English. Then you go to your, you double check it, you look at that Old Testament verse, it just went from Hebrew to English. So you see how they're not going to be perfectly identical because you've, it's like you hit that Google Translate button one more time. <laughs> so it changes, it's a little better than that, but it did change slightly. Um, <clears throat> and there are certain passages that don't translate well because it's like a loaded phrase. This phrase has several important things it's communicating and the translator will pick one of those things and sort of highlight that because he can't get it all into the English. Like for instance, what if someone wants to translate my English here, but they don't know where this phrase comes from? And I say, well, you know, a bird in the hand. And then I just continue talking. Now, how do I translate that? I mean, I could translate the phrase, a bird in the hand. But maybe I decide to go, <clears throat> um, uh, better is what you have. You know, and that's how I translate it. And I'm going, I'm trying to get the idea across. So translators have to deal with some challenging passages when they get to colloquialisms and sayings and Proverbs, sayings of wisdom and stuff. So you'll see different translations. It's not that they're handling it dishonestly at all, at all uh, usually. <laughs> it's, that, it's that they're trying to uh, get this across. So <clears throat> let me read to you verse 18. Here's the Septuagint version, right? If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Then Proverbs 11.31, New King James Version says, If the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? Now, they're both juxtaposing or comparing the idea of the righteous one. They're going to they're gonna experience suffering and difficulties, even though they're saved. But the wicked one's going to go through even more hardship. I mean, how much more? You're not getting chastened. You're not being rebuked. You're not being corrected. You're going to get punished. So how much more will it be for you? So you see how it's the same idea, slightly different wordings. <clears throat> but we'll see this a lot. Um, but I want you to know this. Whether you've got the New King James Version or you've got the NASB, or if you're using the Septuagint, or you're using the Hebrew Old Testament, or if you're using the, the NIV, or whatever, you name it. Any translation that you have, or any text source, different types of texts, you do not have a single important doctrine of the Christian faith in question at all. You will still get the same theology. So there are some debates. Ooh, is this passage saying this or this? Is the word Jesus in this passage, or is it the word Lord? But in the end, it means the same thing. It's just, most of it's just academic debates. It's, but in the end, it means the same thing. And that's good to know in case you decide to dip into that sort of study, which is I encourage you to do. But it is um, a little bit brain-bending <clears throat> because of the, uh, gosh, I mean, when you get into the texts and the different source texts and papyri and manuscripts and blasey, 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 it, it gets a little bit overwhelming. It's good to know that for the most part, our English translations are totally fine. <clears throat> in fact, if you go through the effort of studying and learning, say, Greek, you will probably decide at the end that you didn't exactly need to do that in order to understand the Bible. There are those who try to act like if you study Greek and you learn the Hebrew and you learn the original languages, that you're going to open your Bible and it's going to be like, whoa, it's going to be like that pop-out book. Whoa, you know, it just, it comes out like never before. And I understand it like I never did before. And I get this better meaning than ever before. <clears throat> but I like what one uh, scholar said after spending many, many years studying Greek, teaching Greek. He says, many people ask me, um, Pastor, what, what does this say in the Greek? I want to understand this passage. And I have to look at it and turn to them and say, 
the same thing it says in the English. It was translated well. And this is so often the case. <clears throat> so that we should not expect to have like some, like, you know, there's, you're more spiritual if you, if you know the Greek or the Hebrew or something like that. In fact, in English, we simply have wonderful translations. Uh, we have too many wonderful translations, actually, because of publishing houses and financial incentives and stuff. They keep coming out with English translations. We really need to come out with better other language translations. We need better Spanish translations and better Russian translations. We need better translations in Chinese and these other languages that are more scholarly. What we don't need is more English translations. I think we've got a lot of good ones already. <clears throat> Pardon me. So when you learn language, you learn that the English is actually pretty good. It can even be disappointing. <laughs> You'll be like, you expect a wow every verse, and it's just the wow that was already there <laughs> instead of a new one. You know, a Greek wow, however you'd say wow in Greek. Don't ask me. I have no idea. But I will say one thing about translations. Word for word is the way to go. There's, there's, a, there's thought for thought translation. Like the NIV is a thought for thought translation. It's, I don't think the NIV is an evil translation. I think some people have portrayed it as that. But I, I do think, though, it's thought for thought or idea for idea. So they take more liberties. This is why you might read it and say, that's easier. <clears throat> it does get easier to understand. But the Bible's not written like Dr. Seuss material, you know? So it's not like it's all written on the same level. There are some books that are easy to read. The, the Greek or the Hebrew is just easier. So those are easier to understand. And you might find yourself drawn to those books. But then there are some books where the grammar is a lot harder. And, and, and it's nuanced. And it's important that we see those nuances so we can get the message. So when we move from a word-for-word <clears throat> -word translation to a paraphrase or a thought-for-thought -thought translation, we lose those nuances. And, we're, and the point is, I'm missing out on what the text actually says. So I like having, say, New Living Translation or something as a secondary reading thing. I, I'll listen to it, just put it on and hear it, read through it. But when I'm going to study the word, I want a word-for-word -word translation. That's, that's what I would recommend for people. Because you have what? You have what's closely most accurate to the original. And that's what I want. I want to get as close as I can. So anyway, I hope that helps. <clears throat> but that's one way that the Old Testament quotes the Bible. The Old Testament will quote the Old Testament by just, here's the verse. It's usually from the Septuagint, so you might find that when you flip there, it's slightly different. That's just translational things. But this also encourages me. If God, by the Holy Spirit, led the authors of the New Testament to quote the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew, doesn't this kind of endorse the idea of translations? I mean, if God had translations used, this seems to endorse it. So I, again, I don't feel like you have to learn the original language. What am I going to do? I go to someone in, in the middle of Russia, and I'm witnessing to them and sharing the, my faith with them. And they're, I go, yeah, you have to learn Greek and Hebrew, or you can't really know God's word. No. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, so the second way in which the New Testament quotes the Old Testament is actually not a direct quote. It's more of like a summary of biblical doctrine. So it'll say, like the scriptures say, and then it will summarize a biblical a doctrine, like... Uh, you know, doesn't the Bible say everyone needs Jesus? And I'd be like, absolutely, it says everyone needs Jesus, but not with those words. So if then I use my concordance and I'm looking for, where's the passage where they got that quote, everyone needs Jesus? I won't find it. But the teaching is there. So sometimes the New Testament's quoting an Old Testament teaching, but not an Old Testament passage. And so that, um, that's one way of, of doing it. And that's why you might be looking for the cross-reference and not finding it. And you're like, okay, it's because it's, it's the teaching, not the passage that's being quoted. Other times, it's a vague reference to a, I think I would call it a biblical idea or a biblical example. This is the third way the New Testament quotes the Old. 
That's what you see happening in verse 17. It says, for what? The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I think this is a vague reference to a biblical idea. <clears throat> it's appealing to an idea. It's, it's kind of like if I said, hey, man, you're in the lion's den. And you'd know what I meant if you're familiar with the passage. You'd get that. But I'm not telling you that the lion's den is actually prophetic about your life. I'm just you know, giving an example. So this... I think comes from a few different passages. Those two will highlight. So if you would, turn to Amos chapter 3. Amos, when's the last time you read Amos? It's been a while, probably. <laughs> it's been a little while, I imagine. But here we are, Amos chapter 3. And this is one of the places where we'll get the concept that is being carried forward in the New Testament. Judgment begins at the house of God. So the point is here, God deals with his people. And Amos 3.2 says, You only I have known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You only I have known, therefore I will punish you. Dad, why are you so hard on me? Because you're my kid. You know, you're the one, I, you're the one I've known, had relations with, had a relationship with nationally. Therefore, I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. So we get this just concept that judgment begins here. Judgment will come upon the people of God, the, the house of God. Ezekiel 9.6 has an even more direct example of this. Ezekiel 9.6. Now, in Ezekiel 9, God's talking about, their, here's a vision of Ezekiel. Most of Ezekiel's visions are a good portion of it. And he sees the, this, this slaughter that's going to happen, and it's going to be punishment for what people have done. Everybody who doesn't have the mark of God on them, who's not set aside like they're faithful to God, the rest were gonna, are going to get slaughtered. And it begins at the temple, and it works its way out from there. So it begins at the house of God and works its way outward from that location. So you could say, literally, judgment began at the house of God. So Ezekiel 9, 6, Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. At where? At the house of God. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. So now this is a vision. It wasn't fulfilled in, uh, in the way in which it was envisioned literally. It was a vision of a, a prophetic vision of something that would happen in a slightly different fashion. But you get the idea that the New Testament here is just appealing to a general Old Testament idea. And sometimes we have these types of references that you get. And they'll say, as the scripture says. And then you're like, where's the quote? Where's the quote? And it's maybe one of these other ways in which the Bible's being quoted. So that would be, I think, the third, the third way. And the point here is that judgment does begin with God's people. That God deals with his people. There's no such thing as, I'm okay, you're okay. I, I, now, I, as a pastor, I want to warm hearts, you know, like when they come to the ministry, I want them to be blessed. I want them to be ministered to. I'd like to give them good news all the time. That would be nice. It would certainly make me even more popular than I already am, which is obviously I'm amazingly popular. <laughs> but, but the problem is, the problem is that that's not what God has for us. Think about the seven letters to the seven churches. It's mixed. God's just real. He's just real about it. 
He's like, look, here's what you're doing good. Here's what you're doing bad. And he has actually some very harsh words. Ephesus, in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus, they left their first love. And God told them, repent and do your first works. Go back to the first works. Smyrna was going to be tested 10 days. There's no rebuke for them, but God tells them, you're, still, you're not rebuked. There's nothing wrong, but you're still going to be tested for 10 days. Pergamos had sexual sins, and they were eating things sacrificed to idols, which isn't even the same as idolatry, but it was connected to idolatry in a, in a way. And they were, they were sort of beginning that bridge between them and idolatry. Thyatira was tolerating false teaching. They were tolerating false teachers. So they're rebuked for even, even allowing false teaching to take place in their presence. This is, this is something that actually, interestingly, if the pastor goes weird, it is the congregation's responsibility to not tolerate that. Like they should chase him out of the church, like not physically with hammers and stuff. But you know what I mean? They should, they should stand up and say, no. We will, we, won't, we will not tithe until you get out of here. We will not tolerate your false teaching. And they should, they should do whatever they can, you know, pull their weight to do it. When, when the false teaching is about the gospel and the false teaching is about essential issues, that's absolutely, it's our responsibility. <clears throat> Sardis is told that they're alive, but only in name. They're only, in name only are they alive. They're just keeping up appearances. And so God calls them out and says, you're just trying to keep up your Christian face and keep up your Christian smile, but you're not legit. Your heart is not right with me. And your life is, are not right with me. In Philadelphia, he just gives them encouragement. So if you're ever asked, which church do you think you are? Always say Philadelphia, because it's only good news for them. <laughs> any, any of the other ones, you're admitting something's wrong. So we wouldn't want to do that. Um, <clears throat> the Laodicea, the final one, Laodicea is the lukewarm church, and God's going to vomit them out of his mouth. And so he has harsh words for his people. In other words... The Revelation is the book of what? Judgment. God's wrath upon the world. But before the world ever gets wrath, judgment begins at the house of God. And Jesus targets his people before the wrath upon the world falls. It's the judgment eyes of Jesus Christ fall upon his people. And he says, get this right, get this right. Now it falls upon us in a different way. The world's just being beat down and punished. But the church is being purified, corrected, rebuked. We're being brought back into right relationship. So that's awesome. Now, if Jesus wrote a letter to you right now today, what do you think it would say? Now, I like asking this question, you know, what, what would it say? If the letter to the churches was written to you, what would it say? But here's the problem. I'm a really lousy judge of what Jesus would write to me. I'll bet you none of the churches would have expected these letters. I'll bet none of them would have thought. I bet even Philadelphia would have thought something bad was going to become, you know. None, they probably all would have been wrong. We're not a very good judge of us. And some of the churches would have certainly been shocked by the stuff that was there. And I'll probably some would have been like, yeah, you're right. We're lukewarm and we know it. But I'll bet you somebody else from Laodicea would have read that and been like, I'm not lukewarm, man. We're not lukewarm. We're, I think we're doing good, man. We're, we're doing good. We got programs and we got all kinds of good things going on. Oh, and on a mission trip. Yeah. So unfortunately, what we have to do then is, is go, Lord, write me a letter, you know, like, give me wisdom, help me have insight, look into me and say, you know, what, what you like and don't like, what you want to see and don't want to see. And remember this, Revelation 3.19, he says this at the close of all the letters, as many as I rebuke, or as many as I love, I rebuke, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. That's the judgment that falls on believers. It's rebuke because he loves us and he's trying to bring us back. It's the shepherd's cane that's you know, got the, the hook on it to pull us in closer to the Lord. Closer to the Lord. That's amazing to me that he's always trying to restore the relationship. 
<clears throat> so judgment begins at the house of God. And I think that connects to 1 Peter 4, 1, to put it in context, right? For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So I'm being purified. I am going through my sufferings in this life to bring me into a closer likeness of Jesus. And if I'm going through this, what's going to happen to the world that rejects Jesus entirely? At this point, though, I know that my heart sometimes gets a little irritated because it seems like it's always about me in the bad way. <laughs> you know, have you ever gone for counsel and you tell someone the things that are bothering you and they look at you and they go, you know what I think your problem is? And you're like, no, it's not me, man. You're supposed to pat me on the back and encourage me. I remember there was a friend I counseled for many years. I counsel him all the time. He'd, come, he'd call me up and I'd listen to him and pray for him. And one time I was like, you know, I, I, I really felt strongly about this. And I was telling him, I said, I think you need to man up. Like, and I don't mean in an arrogant, proud way. I think that you're complaining about things, but you're in a position to be the solution to those problems. You need to step forward and take a stand for what's right. And then he said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, Mike, can you please just listen and pray for me? And I realized that if I continued to talk, it was just going to burn that bridge with him anyways. I just listened to him and I prayed for him. You know, I, wanted to, I, I love the guy. You know, But I know I feel that way sometimes too. Like, oh, man, I don't want to be the bad guy. Why is it always me? Me and my wife got in a disagreement. You know, we don't argue. We just disagree. <laughs> it's never happened. Um, you know, we, something, something went wrong. And at the end of it, I walk away and I'm like, Lord, oh, please help her. to. And by the time that prayer's over, it's all about me. Yeah, Lord, help me to love my wife as Christ loved the church self-sacrificially. That's my calling. Once again, the correction comes my direction and not towards the other person. And um, over and over again, it ends up being that way. Why? Because God loves me. And because God wants to purify me and chasten me and correct me. And so, so if that's happening in us, here's the, here's the rhetorical question that is asked in verse um, 18 and verse 17, actually. He says, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Or what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? There's a contrast between cleansing, God's cleansing fire versus God's judgment, God's wrath that's being poured out. There's a big difference. What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Well, what will be their end is that every single work that they've ever done will be brought into judgment and the perfect and just penalty for those things will be poured out upon them. That God's wrath will be poured out perfectly and justly and without the covering of Jesus because they've not obeyed the gospel. When I obey the gospel, I submit to the truths of Christ. So I, I, I bring my life into submission to Christ. This is a really harsh reality that, that there's, a, there's a real hell coming. Um, and it's not something that we, that we glorify. In fact, look at how, I mean, God's like, you can go to hell, but it's over my dead body. I don't want you there. Obviously. Clearly. Now, sometimes at this point, people attack Christianity because we have hell and we talk about hell and stuff like that, as though we just like invented it for fun. Or some people think that hell was invented for fundraising. And you know, that was purgatory. This, that's different. <laughs> because no amount of money is going is to be a solution to this hell issue. Um, it's as though people invented sickness so that they could have doctors. And we're like, no, one came first. You know what I mean? The sickness is real. There's a real reason why we, we want to have physicians and health and things like that. So it is a harsh reality, but I want to say this just, just for the sake, at least for the video of those watching, is that 
atheism, where atheists so often rail against hell and they attack hell and they almost always give a, every time I've seen, they give a bad representation of hell that's not biblical. Like that's not even what we believe and then they attack it. It's rare that an atheist actually attacks Christianity. They usually attack their version of it, which is like a weird kindergarten-y version. Like, you know, they got somewhere between kindergarten and South Park, the cartoon, and, and then that's where they got their, you know, their Christian theology from. But atheism has harsh reality too. In atheism, there's what's called nihilism or nihilism, right? The idea that everything's going to be annihilated. That there is nothing in the end. Ultimately, permanently, there is nothing. No values, no morals, no people, no persons, no attitudes, no ideas, no matter and energy, nothing. Eventually, the universe which came and popped into existence from nothing will eventually return to a state of heat death. Where, you know, because of entropy, everything just gets spreading out further and further and further. And they've confirmed this. If it wasn't for God intervening, this is what would happen. They just spread out further and further and further until... The stars burn out, matter spreads out to where the closest molecules are so far apart from each other that it's nothing. It's equivalent to nothing. There's no moral. There's no value. Everything you've ever done will be forgotten. Everyone you've ever touched will die, and everyone they know will eventually die, and everyone that remembers them is going to die. That in atheism, it's a harsh reality. Now, what's weird is that Christians, we look at our harsh reality and we go, hey, hell's real, man. Get right with Jesus. But so often when atheists look at the harsh reality of nihilism and they go, oh man, no, I, I make my own hope. And then all of a sudden they become like the religious-y wishful thinking that they're so against. And then they're, then they're saying, oh, well, you know, I choose to have hope. I, I like what uh, Christopher Hitchens said one time. They're asking, well, then based on atheism, where do you find hope? Where do you find joy? Where do you find purpose? And he said, well, I find that uh, laughing and uh, mocking other people's pain is pretty fun for me. And he said it tongue-in-cheek, but the crowd laughed, and, they, and the atheists in the audience all applauded, like this was actually a legitimate answer, because they'll do anything to get away from that question as quick as possible, because there is no hope, and there is no purpose. There's very few that are willing to honest, honestly address this issue. I saw a um, group of atheists who, who, in the beginning of their discussion, they said that they, ultimately there was no morality, and there was no purpose, and there was no hope of any kind. But then as they were pressed on these questions, they were so uncomfortable with the idea of their own perspective that they started to invent things. And they go, well, you know, but, but I think atheism is noble and I add hope into my own life, which is, in other words, I pretend. <laughs> I pretend. That's what they've got to offer is I pretend. So, um, oh, it's, but it's, it's a harsh reality that they face. Um, unfortunately, um, they're wrong. <laughs> they're, and the reality is actually a little bit worse than that because hell is real. Hell is real. But it could be so much better if they receive Christ. So for that reason, I think as Christians, we have to speak on hell. Jesus actually talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Surprisingly enough, he mentioned it more. And we're going to be doing on Sunday evenings eventually, sometime coming soon, probably when I'm done with First Peter, I'll do a study on hell. I want to do a, a biblical teaching of the concept of hell. I think it's very confused. I know, I, I'll tell you some of the stuff I heard when I was in youth ministry, when I was a, a student and I just started coming to church and I heard about hell and I how and about heaven that was wrong and how that that was inappropriate that, that someone put that in my mind. So I want to get a biblical view on what heaven and hell are going to be like. Um, but regardless, though, um, the, the, the penalties we go through now are the chastening of God and the things that the world who rejects Jesus will go through is wrath. That is God's wrath. It's a different thing altogether. Different thing altogether. So if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. 
And it says here, 11.6. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. I want to cover this verse real quick. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So um, this idea, okay, I have to, I have to come to God believing that he is and believing that he's also a rewarder of those who seek him. The reason why this connects to 1 Peter 4 is because in 1 Peter 4, he tells us that those who suffer according to the will of God should commit their souls to him, to God, in doing good as to a faithful creator. And this connects to our Hebrews verse because it talks about what it means to do this. Without faith, it's impossible. I have to believe that God is, which means believe God exists. Now, this is more than simply going, I believe there's a God or a creator or a being who made things out there. I'm actually believing in the right definition of God. So if I was to say, I believe that my mom exists, but then I define my mom as like a two foot tall, like golden retriever puppy that's three months old and isn't potty trained yet, then I'm obviously not actually believing that my mom exists. I've just said mom when talking about a golden retriever. So if I go, well, I believe in God. And you go, wow, so what do you believe God is? Like, I believe God's in everything. Like He's in the chair and he's like in the clouds and he's in me and he's in you. And I'm like, is he in poop and beef jerky too? Is this like, you believe in, this is pantheism? Like you think that God's not a person. He's just, he's just the stuff that the universe is made of. So when you say God, you actually mean you believe that matter and energy exist. That's not God. That's not the biblical God. So that wouldn't be belief in God. That's, so you have to not only believe God exists, that he, he, but God exists. <laughs> he exists. Not just believe something exists. But also believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now that's a little different though, isn't it, right? Like not only do I believe God exists, but I believe that he has rewards for those who seek him. That he responds to me living my life for him. That he cares if I acknowledge him and I live that out. And I believe that he rewards. That's huge. That's huge. Why? Because the suffering Christian knows that he has glory ahead. The suffering believer knows that God rewards those who seek him diligently. And that it's coming and it's certain and it's real and it's wonderful. Could you imagine the type of reward that God might have for us? We call it heaven. Right? Like the old song, heaven, I'm in heaven. It's the only part of it I know, but anyway, <laughs> but the idea is like, oh, I'm in heaven. Like, oh, it's so wonderful. I mean, this is the concept of heaven that is definitely accurate. It is wonderful in his, in his, in his presence, man, in his presence. So he's that rewarder. So we are to do this. Verse 19, I'm suffering. I'm to commit my soul to him in doing good. That word commit, it means to give in charge as a deposit, to give in charge and what am, I, what am I giving in charge to God? I'm like, Lord, this is your, you're in charge of this. I'm depositing this with you. I trust you with this. I'm doing it with my soul. With my soul. With my life. With my very being. With all that I am. So I don't have my plans and my agenda and I say, God, bless these. Instead, I go, Lord, here's my whole soul. Here's all that I am. Do whatever you want with it. I trust you with this. I trust you with me. And the evidence of this, that I've done this, that I've committed my soul to him in doing good is... The doing good is that I do the good things that I'm trusting him with. And so um, 
I think James brings this in. James chapter 2, verse 18 and 19 says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So you know, he's saying it in quotes. And he goes, someone will say, James, uh, you have, or no, excuse me, uh, you have faith. The people who don't work, they're just believing God. But James, you have works. You have faith. In, you have works instead of faith. And James is actually really against this idea. He believes that faith, the book of James, that faith saves, but then saving faith will also produce works. It's, a nat- it's called fruit. It's a natural outgrowth of genuine faith. So he responds, show me your faith without your works. <laughs> like, show me, prove to me that you have faith, but don't use works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So a simple intellectual acknowledgement of God is not enough, but the idea is that if I genuinely believe in Christ, I'm going to live this out in my life. Now, the living it out doesn't produce the belief. It's the other way around, the belief. So we believe in faith, you know, in Christ equals salvation plus works. Works come after salvation, but we don't switch the equation around and say faith plus works equals salvation. And James doesn't do that either if you read him carefully. That's clearly not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we're justified in the eyes of man. I will show you my faith by my works. Now, God knows my faith automatically, but I can't prove it to any human being on earth because they're not going to see my heart unless they see my actions. You know you know some people and you go, man, that person's legit. Like, they really love the Lord. I can tell. How can you tell? Because I looked into their heart and I saw faith. No, I saw their lives. I saw the, the lives they lived and said, ah, that's legit. That guy's, that guy's living it out. That girl's living it out. They're, they're honoring Christ in their lives. So that's what committing my soul to God is all about. And I think we have a great example of this. Uh, turn to Daniel chapter 3. And I'm going to look at the story briefly of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I did at one point learn all of their Hebrew names and remember them because I just liked the, their Hebrew names. But I, I just don't remember them all very well. I would just butcher it now. But... Hananiah and Azariah and and Abednego. (laughs) Yeah. Every night we do that. To bed we go. And to bed we go. All right. So then uh, verse, Daniel 3, verse 13, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Now this guy has the power to kill them because they will not bow down to his false image. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace and who is the god who will deliver you from my hands so keep in mind they are polytheists they do not think it's contradictory for shadrach meshach and abednego to worship yahweh and to also worship the gods of nebuchadnezzar they think this is going to be fine so they're just irritated they're like we're not even asking you to compromise your stuff we're just asking you to acknowledge what we do come on show some tolerance show some tolerance shadrach meshach and abednego what's wrong with you guys this is the, the, the pluralism of the world. The world's always pluralistic because by default, if you are pluralistic, you've rejected the God of the Bible. So they don't really need to get you to outright openly reject God. They just need to get you to be inclusive. 
to be inclusive and to accept other gods and other idols. But God doesn't tolerate this. Like we see this with Israel. He just, he, he judges the whole nation. Not because they rejected Yahweh, but because they embraced false gods. Because that is a rejection of Yahweh. It's just a deceptive way to do it, a tricky way to do it. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king. And they go, we have no need to answer you in this matter. O Nebi, Nebi my Nebi, you are a great king. You have a lot of authority, but when it comes to who we worship, you have no, you have no say whatsoever. You've got nothing to say here. I like that attitude. They knew when to rebel and when to submit. If that's the case, that they're going to they're gonna be thrown in the fire. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, <laughs> I just love this. It blows me away. He will deliver us, but if not. Now, they know that they're committing their souls to the one whom created them. They know that they're committing their souls to God by doing good. We're going to do the right thing, and God's going to take care of us. And we think he'll deliver us from this fire. But if not, we got a message for you, since this is the last thing you'll hear us say. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. That's committing your soul in doing good to a faithful creator. And God delivered them out of the fiery furnace, and we know how the story goes. But either way, mission accomplished by these three guys. Whether they, like, I mean, when ISIS says, you know, uh, you know deny Christ or, or die. And they say, I can, you know what? You, you can kill me. God can deliver me from you. Either way, I will not bow down to your false God. I will not deny Jesus Christ. I will continue to proclaim his truth. And I pray for your soul that you accept Christ too. And then they die. And they go into the presence of God to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So they commit their souls to God in doing good. That's what they've done. Hebrews 11 talks about this. And we've been in kind of bouncing through Hebrews 11 a couple of times as we've gone through this suffering passages of 1 Peter. But I want to kind of conclude with the end of Hebrews 11. Verse 35, it says this. Hebrews 11, 35 through 40. Women received their dead and raised, uh, raised to life again. And then it, then it shifts gears. It's been talking about these people who had great things happen. Then it talks about a list of people who had terrible things happen because they followed God. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So they did not receive the, the promise, meaning that they didn't uh, see in their earthly life the fulfillment of God's gracious promises to them. They saw it when they went to be with the Lord, of course. But the concept here is, these are lifted up as our examples and they committed their souls to God in doing good. Knowing that the way out is sometimes the way out of avoiding sin is sometimes the way into tribulation and trial and persecution. And uh, certainly we have that example in scripture. And our job is, Lord, I just commit my soul to you. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to worry about the results. Because I know in the end, you're, you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. 
The last passage I want to look at tonight is Philippians 1, verse 27. Verse 27 through 30. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. I think that this passage, um, uh, it summarizes the, the heart of what we've been getting at. Because we're moving from 1 Peter away from this topic of suffering onto some other issues. But I, I want us to hopefully be encouraged be, be bold and courageous and even joyful in suffering if we're doing so for the sake of Christ and for his name. And to realize that the way out of, out of persecution is often a sinful path, a path of a betrayal of Christ. It's, even though and the world looks at it and goes, oh, how very tolerant of you. Um, Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And I'll remind you guys, the term the faith, with the T-H-E in front of it, is the New Testament's way of saying the essentials of what we believe. It's not just saying faith in general, but it's actually the list of doctrinal essentials about Jesus and salvation. So, so stand fast in the faith of the gospel um, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. So that my fearlessness in the face of the fiery, you know, furnace is a way of me saying, look at my face. Do you not see the proof that what you're doing is vain? Do you not see that what you're doing is pointless? Which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me, is in me. The world around us is preaching hardcore for us to, 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 to go along, to get along, to just, just shut up, Christian, shut up. You know, be over, if I ask you for prayer, then you can come pray for me. If I want to hear about your God, then I'll tell you. But God tells us to go out into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. You know, and so we, we, we've got this conflict that's in the world. We, we, it, may, it may cause us to lose a job. It may cause us to lose a friend. It may cause us to lose our health or a family member or our lives. Um, but we've been warned so thoroughly in the scripture to just go for it, to just go for it in the name of Christ, to just share in love not because I'm defending myself, but because I'm outreaching to the world and I'm standing for the faith. I'm striving together for the faith of the gospel. Yeah. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for this encouragement because we need it, Lord. We need it so bad. Um, I think for years and years we've been, uh, maybe not uh, you know, the individuals, but as a, as a group corporately in America, the church has been getting quieter and quieter has been receding more and more into the background to where even believers think that, that the gospel doesn't have a place on a school campus or the gospel doesn't have a place in media or music or art, that the gospel doesn't have a place in politics. And this is, in a sense, a very um, passive abandoning of our commission to share the gospel. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be bold, to commit our souls unto him who rewards us and to just do good and to strive together for that faith. Lord, that we would be those who stand strong in the gospel of Christ, who preach the truth in love and who have the discernment to know when to speak or when not to, but are not influenced in any way by fear of the world. That we would not be in any way terrified by the adversaries, not even a little, 
May we simply be guided by wisdom and discernment, given power and the ability to share the truth of Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare us so that as we go through the suffering, we would, uh, we would see it biblically. We would see it biblically. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for your holy word that is here to wash our minds and correct us and teach us and, and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.